0: Amen. Well, typically, on Wednesday nights, it's my custom, I teach through uh, books of the Bible. Uh, Last year, you know, from, and I look at the year from, you know, now till May, I taught through Romans. But about once every decade, um, I don't teach through a book of the Bible. I will teach the Bible, but I don't teach through a book of the Bible. Now, some of you right now are always antsy. You want to know where we're going to be. So I'm going to tell you, for your antsiness, you can go to Luke chapter 1, but I ain't getting there for a while, but you can go there. So some of you get a leptide if you don't know where we're going. So we're going to Luke chapter 1 tonight. But what, what we're going to do this year, and I say this year through May, is we're, you know, we're going to look at the Christian movement that is in the first century of of, of you know, the millennium of Christianity. And we're looking at something I'm entitling the beginning of a movement. Because Christianity is a movement. It's not a religion. In fact, uh, in two weeks when I start my series uh, in September on uh, the life and times of Jesus, uh, out of Mark chapter 1, hint, you can read that ahead of time and know what it is, uh, I'm going to talk about the fact that Christianity is not a religion. It is centered on a person, a person who early on, the, the people who follow Jesus called themselves follower of the way. They saw themselves on, as part of a movement. And so we're going to see the beginning of that movement. And, and what we need to do, and I, and I really feel that as in the culture and the world we live in, We tend to take the Bible, and we understand it occurred in a period of time. But we tend to take the Bible, and we tend to take it out of the times and out of the epics and out of the cultures in which it existed and the stories existed. We take them out of those times, those cultures. We look at them through the lens of today, and we don't fully grasp and understand what's going on. And so what I want to really do over this year in our Wednesday night growth sessions is to look at what is happening in the Scripture in the New Testament and understand the culture surrounding it and what difference that makes. And, and, and there's a unique perspective in that. I, uh, I got my bachelor's from Trinity in uh, history and political science. My master's in Southwestern Seminary is in the area of theology. And my doctorate is in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the fundamental teachings of Jesus. And when I take those three disciplines, it hasn't my ministry given me a perspective of understanding things in which the context of the world and environment in which the scriptures were written or the stories that are in the scriptures occur become fundamentally important for me to understand what God is revealing to us. Over the course of these next nine months, on Sunday mornings oftentimes, for instance, I said in September I'm preaching through Mark chapter 1, talking about the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. It's it's a series that's going to deal with Christ coming into a culture and a context that that he radically changed and altered. I will do a deep fry um, next January on John 15, 16, uh, 14, 15, and 16, which is the upper room discourse of Jesus hours before he death when he talked about what's going to happen when he dies and is ascended. I will preach about the resurrection of Christ, that people saw him, the difference they made in their lives in January. And around the time of Easter for seven weeks going into Easter, I'm going to preach about the seven things Jesus said on the cross to help us understand the, the unusually radical nature of what the cross provides for us. And so I want you to see this, and to do that, we need to kind of grasp something. One of the things that I, I say all the time about the Bible, and I realize we live in a culture today where people who aren't followers of Christ tend not to believe in the Bible too much. They don't care about the Bible, and I get that. But if you're coming to Bible study on Wednesday night, I'm going to make a fundamental assumption that to some degree you believe the Bible has something important to say And I'm going to go beyond that and say probably most, if not all of you, believe that the Bible comes from God, that the Bible is God's word. In fact, this is what I say about Scripture all the time, that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. In Scripture, God reveals himself to us, and he reveals himself most clearly in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament is a book That promises us something. And the New Testament is a book that tells us how that promise was fulfilled. And what happens oftentimes in Christianity is people make a mistake of not understanding that the Old Testament looks towards Jesus. And what they tend to do is look at the Old Testament and think it, it is just a series of events that occurred and that God's people, the Jews, God, you know, God brought the Jewish people into, into existence and they became his people and they messed up so bad that he had to fix stuff they messed up and so that brought Jesus about and that's not what it happens. When you go to the Old Testament and you realize that man sinned against God, you realize from the beginning God has to fix a fundamental problem with us and that is our rebellion against him. And the only way God can ever fix our rebellion against him is through a Savior who was Jesus Christ the Lord. In the process of doing that, in a world that, that was completely rebellious against God, that had no concept of God, that worshipped foreign gods, and, and, and that didn't exist but they made them up, and, and they were pagans, and they had these brutally bizarre practices, they would, they would sacrifice their children, To appease gods that they made up, they would have these perverse sexual practices in order to try to entice the gods to bless them. They would take pieces of stone, they would take pieces of wood, and they would carve them into figures and bow down and worship them as if they were truly gods. And so the Lord God Almighty took a group of people that were the descendants of a man named Abram that he selected... And he chose them for himself in order to work through them to bring about the redemption of mankind, the salvation of mankind. He called them to live a life of faith in him. And in doing so, this is what he told them. I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods besides me. Period. And then he gave them ten commandments and said, if you will follow these ten commandments... You will demonstrate your faith and trust in me. But to not follow these Ten Commandments is to show that you don't trust me. Oh, by the way, if you ever worship any other god or gods, eventually you will pay a heavy price for your disobedience. And if you read the Old Testament, what you see are these people constantly disobeying God. And they disobey God, and you read the book of Kings, especially in Chronicles, and you see that they they developed into two different kingdoms, the northern and the southern, and, and they were so enmeshed, so just involved in paganism, that in 722, God took a despicable people, the Assyrians, and he wiped out the northern kingdom. And he hoped that the southern kingdom of Judah, in which Jerusalem, the capital, resided, and through the kingly line of David, kings still ruled, they would get the picture, and they didn't. And so in 587, he completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and took all those Jews and through the Babylonians took them into exile. You read on after that happens and you get to the books of the prophets and you see the prophets were at different times. But you come to the end of the Old Testament. There's a prophet named Malachi who wrote a book. And the very last words that Malachi writes, Malachi says, That there was going to come a man in the fashion of Elijah the great prophet from centuries before. And he will be a forerunner to the one who's to come. And um, before the great, mighty, and tragic day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment of all people, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. In other words, he will turn people back to worshiping God. And that book ends, and it's about 430 B.C., And God does not speak for 400 years. And then we come to the New Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, what we see are the people of God are completely different than they used to be. When you're in the Old Testament, you have a group of people, and around 400 or so, that, that were poor, they were broken, Their their religion was... was, They were still fighting, not worshipping foreign gods. There were still problems. It it was just a mess. And then you come, 430-something years later, and even though the Romans ruled, you come to a people, and and they're they're legalistic, they're hard, there's prosperity, they're numerous. It's just a different world. So what happened in that period of time? In 587... And I'm going to give you some some background to help you understand what happens when you come to the New Testament. Because when you come to the New Testament, there's people that don't exist. There's groups that don't exist in the Old Testament. There's groups called the Pharisees. There's rabbis. There's the Sadducees. They have this thing called the synagogue that doesn't exist in the Old Testament. And synagogues are everywhere in the New Testament. And they have all these rules and all these regulations. You don't even see them in the Old Testament. The Babylonians were defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire in about 538, 537, right there, B.C. And when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they allowed a lot of the Jews to go back home to Judea and ultimately in Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. There was no temple. And in that period of time, you have books like Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther written. Later on, you would have Malachi about the same time written. And the Persians gave them some degree of religious freedom. So they went back, and they lived there. They were poor. The city of Jerusalem was a mess. They rebuilt the temple a little bit, but it was nowhere near the grandeur of the old temple and the original temple that had been destroyed. And then in about 331 or two, a guy named Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. And he took Israel, and he took Jerusalem. And when Alexander the Great won and created the world and defeated the world at that point, and he defeated all over the place, he was so enamored and so in love with the Greek culture from which he came that he took the Greek culture and he spread it all over the conquered lands. So they spoke the Greek language, they did Greek things, they ate Greek food, I don't know, they did all that stuff, you know. And that happened even in the area of Judea, Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem. Now, we call that process of making things Greek Hellenization. They Hellenized them. Think Helen or Troy, That's stuff. In the New Testament, in the early church, you see a problem existing in Acts chapter 6, and it says that the Jewish Christian women, the Christian women who came, who were, they were all Jews at that time, basically, so it's redundant, the Christians, the women, The Jewish-speaking women were getting preferential treatment, the widows, over the Greek-speaking Christian women, the Hellenized ones. Hellenization is everywhere. Now, for the most part, in Jerusalem and Judea, they refrained from too much of this Greek influence, but in Galilee, in the countryside, it prevailed. When Alexander the Great died at such a young age, in 330, 331, Eventually, his kingdom was divided into four parts. And two of them matter. There were two kingdoms that were set up. One kingdom was in the area of of Syria, Damascus. And it was called the Seleucids. And the other kingdom was in Egypt, and it was the Ptolemies. And they kind of fought, and right in the middle was Israel, and they fought over Israel. And eventually, the Seleucid dynasty ran Israel. And they had an emperor by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he was just, you know, just a cruel, wicked, godless man, pagan. And all during this time that all of this was happening, going on, this was about 166, 167. All during the the time when the Greeks took over and all that stuff, the Jews were constantly fighting inwardly about who got to control the temple and who got to control Jerusalem. And the people. They fought over who was going to be the high priest because the high priest was the man, the head dog, the lead, lead one of the Jewish people. And they bribed and they fought and some were the rightful line of Aaron and some didn't. I mean, it's crazy. And in the midst of this internal civil war, Antichus Epiphanes went and besieged the city of Jerusalem. And there was a whole lot of stuff going on. He went into the temple and he desecrated the temple, what is called the abomination of desecration. And he slaughtered a sacrifice to the god Zeus and took out all the Jewish stuff. And then he outlawed the worship of Yahweh in Judaism. And he enforced paganism. And so they went out into the rural areas to enforce this. And they went to a place called Modin. And there was a man named Mattathias who was the priest of Modin. And when these pagans came there and said, offer a sacrifice to Jews, the Zeus, he said no. I won't do it, and they threatened to kill him in the city, and somebody, and everybody else in the city. And one of the people there came, one of the Jews to make the sacrifice, and Mattathias took a knife and slew that Jewish man, and killed him. Killed the officers of the Seleucid army, killed them all, and he and his sons began a revolution known as the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt, similar to our American Revolution, was a misfit ragtag group of guys who went up against this unbelievable empire and defeated them. And within a couple of years, the Jewish people won. And they had freedom and independence, basically, from 165 to about 63 B.C. And all during this time, they fought and they fought and they fought over who got to be the high priest. In 63 B.C., there was a a, a Roman general of great power named Pompey. And Pompey was fighting all over the place, came down that way, and eventually he just came to settle this matter. He came into Jerusalem. He defeated whatever. He walked into the temple, and he didn't really desecrate the temple because he was Gentile. When he looked around, he put someone in charge and said, y'all go back to having freedom of religion. He gave them the freedom to worship God. He said, y'all can have the freedom to worship God. Fix your act. Don't cause us any problem, and you're fine. Except they weren't fine. They kept still fighting amongst themselves. He, along with a guy named Julius Caesar, and Cassius got involved in a war, and they took over. And eventually, when all was said and done, Julius Caesar went out. And Julius Caesar, who was the great emperor, you know, the pagan, I got that by that standards, died in 44. And the Jews were in turmoil. And his nephew, Octavius, who we call Augustus, was supposed to be in charge. There was still more civil war, more battles. Octavius, Mark Anthony, you know, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, lepidus they got in into battle. They won out. And then Octavius and, and Mark Anthony fought. Octavius won. And so what happens is Octavius comes to power. We know him as Augustus. Jesus was born under his reign. And he begins what's called the Peace of Rome, in which Christianity begins. In that time, in that process, a man came to be in charge over that area of the world whose name was Herod. We know him as Herod the Great, who slaughtered the innocents. In that context, Jesus was born. But here's what's interesting happened. In that period of time, from 167, when they, when they won their battle against Antiochus, to the coming of Christ, groups of Israel changed, Judaism changed, and here's what happened. They moved away from the danger of paganism, and they began to be so inclusive of themselves that they created laws and a religious system that forced people to obey certain laws, certain rituals, certain things in order to be considered right with God. And the groups developed within that time. One group we know of called the Pharisees and one group called the Sadducees. And they were religious groups. And here's basically what happened. They so wanted to guarantee that people never worship the pagans again, that they took Ten Commandments... And all of the, the, the examples found in Leviticus of how to fill that out. And they kind of pushed them aside. And they came up with a total of 613 laws and rules that the people had to follow. And so the concept within Judaism became this. The Jews were God's special people. And you were born Jewish. You were special, set apart, unique to God. But by keeping the law, you had a special place in God's kingdom. When they believed when the Messiah come, established the kingdom, the Jews would reign. But those Jews who kept the law would have a special place. And the law wasn't the Ten Commandments. The law was the oral law and the traditional law that the Pharisees came up with and the scribes. So when you come to Jesus... And he's battling the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are located in, the, in the Jerusalem at the temple. And they were the aristocracy. And they were not connected with the Pharisees. They battled. But they were pro-Roman, pro-elitism. He's battling them not because they simply misunderstand The Old Testament is because they rejected that. In essence, they would say they didn't, but they substituted their own religious system. Now, they would tell you they were following the Ten Commandments. They would tell you they're following the Old Testament law, what they call the Scripture law. But they replaced it. And when they they would read the Scriptures in the synagogues, but what they taught people, what they were supposed to obey, was the oral law and the traditions that they brought down from generation to generation. And so you come into this world... And so God's people are no longer God's people because they're not worshiping by faith. They're not following what for them in the Old Testament is the way that God God expects. They're having to follow this entirely different system. And oh, by the way, they completely forgot that what it meant to follow God was by faith. They were looking for a Messiah, but the Messiah they were looking for was the guy who would come And who would be this great military leader, defeat Rome, and establish Israel, the Jewish people, as God who would rule the world? And they lost all aspects of what God truly wanted, which was to come to Him on faith. And they forgot that they were a people who were supposed to help the rest of the world come to God. Instead, they hated the rest of the world. Jews hated everyone who wasn't Jewish. And even some of the people that were Jewish, they hated. And no one was truly worshiping God. And that is the world that Jesus came into. He came into a world that was thoroughly pagan, except for a small group of people who were supposed to be worshipers of God. But they no longer worshipped God the way they were supposed to. They were bound by a tradition and a set of laws that they had created. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five seventeen says, I did not come to do away with the law. He's talking about the Old Testament. He said, I came to fulfill it. And he did. And then he says, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Now, what did he mean? Did you have to keep the law more than them? No. What he meant was, you have to have a righteousness that is fundamentally different than them because they messed it up. And the reason Jesus bowed the Pharisees and Sadducees, Is because they had messed everything up. When you come to Malachi, you're ending on a note of hope that one man is going to come. You come to the New Testament, there are four gospel stories about Jesus. The first one we come to, Matthew, Matthew begins this way. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Of Abraham. He says, This is the story of Jesus. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He said, This is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He comes from the line of David. He comes from Abraham. He's legit. Mark, and we'll see this when I start in September, in Mark chapter 1. He just says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, Here's the gospel. Here is good news. This radical, fundamentally different news. Not the news you're used to, but good news about Jesus, and he begins his story. Luke, where we're going to go, he says, listen, Theophilus, I studied this guy, Jesus, and I'm going to give you an account, which is Luke and Acts. John goes back to the beginning of time and says, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word, hey, it's God. And he, he, he does all of that. These guys are breaking the story of Jesus into a culture and saying, you've got to listen up. This guy is different than anything you're used to. So Luke comes in his story. And Luke does something different than the other Gospels. Matthew begins with the genealogy, then goes to the birth of Jesus. Mark just starts with the ministry of Jesus. He goes to John the Baptist first and talks about John, but he's doing that. John starts at creation and then just goes straight into the ministry of Jesus. Luke goes back to a time before Jesus was born to the birth of another person. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says this. In the days of Herod, Herod the Great." who was the king of Judah. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So there's a priest. The priests are connected in some way with the temple. Most of the priests had become corrupted. Most of the priesthood was not doing the things they should do. He was married to a descendant of Aaron. This would be like a preacher marrying a preacher's daughter. I mean, this is the guy. And here's what verse 6 says. They were both righteous. How were they righteous? Were they righteous by following the laws of, of the Pharisees, which is what righteousness was? Jews, the, the Jews believed righteousness came by keeping the law, the ceremonial law, the traditional law, the oral law. No, it says they were righteous in what? The sight of God. They did not have The religious litmus test. They did not follow the traditional system of the Pharisees set up. It says they were righteous in the eyes, in the sight, in the mind of God. They did what was right. And it says, and they were walking blamelessly at the commandments and requirements of who? The Lord. Not the Pharisees. The Lord. And it says this. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, back then, having children was a blessing. And if you didn't have children, it was an idea that God was upset with you. That you were being cursed by God. And so everyone would assume that Elizabeth and Zechariah had done something wrong. that, That there was some sort of sin in their life. That God was not blessed in. But yet they were righteous in the eyes of God. Now, what happened... In verse 8, that while he was performing his priestly service before God and the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Back in that day, every day, they went into the temple, burned incense. There were sacrifices made. Now, on the high holy day, you know, they would, Kippur they would offer the great sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. There were 24 divisions of priests. Each division had about 900 people. And twice a year, each division, each group, would get one week at a time in the temple. There were four weeks unaccounted of for. Of those who were surrounded Passover, Yom Kippur. Everybody would come. It would be a big deal. And what the responsibility would be doing do is several things. But one priest had to go light the altar of incense. It was such a privilege, you only got to do it once in your career. Some guys never did it. And they drew lots to do it. Drawing lots means that they had a lottery, which we Baptists don't like that. Don't like lottery and gambling. They rolled dice is what they did. They didn't play 42. Sorry. So why, why, why growing up could I not play cards but the old guys could play 42? What? Why was that? That's just wrong, man. I played cards. I played poker. I won money. Until I became a pastor and then I'd stop doing that for some reason. Except for once, but I won't go into that time. And I still won money, and I didn't tithe it either. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. They prayed. What they prayed for was that God would save Israel through Messiah. They prayed for coming to Messiah. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right the altar of incense. We know later on it was Gabriel. And notice, Zachariah was troubled when he saw the angel. Fear gripped him. All throughout the early narratives, what do I tell you all the time at Christmas? Every time an angel showed up, people get scared. And so Gabriel brought his major calling cord. In verse 13, he said, don't be afraid. First words out of the angel's mouth, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition, your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give her the name John. Now, here's an interesting, fascinating thing. Your prayer has been heard. What? Prayer. Now, there are some who will tell you that when John got this unique privilege to burn incense, that he once again prayed that he and his wife could have a son as a blessing of God. Because the word petition tends to mean a particular supplication, a particular prayer of a specific nature. The problem with that is earlier we were told that he, um, he was too old to have kids. And he, so we would assume that he gave up on that. The other problem is he was, he was a righteous man in the eyes of God. So it's hard to believe that a man was righteous before God. would take his one opportunity in life to burn incense. And his one opportunity to lead the nation of Israel in praying for the coming of Messiah. That he would use it on a very selfish way. Now I'm sure he may have prayed for a son at other times even then. So... Most likely, what he prayed for was the salvation of Israel through a Messiah. But here's the interesting thing. The way God answered that prayer was this. I'm going to answer your prayer that Israel be saved. Here's how I'm going to answer the prayer that Israel be saved. I'm going to give you a son. That's how I'm going to answer that prayer. And then he said this. He will give you joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Later on. And here's what he says. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Now, in, less, in verse 15, he also says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while his mother's room. So in other words, he's taking what we call the Nazarite vow. In the Old Testament, there's the vow of a Nazarite. Don't cut your hair. Don't drink booze. Don't touch nothing dead. He's going, to be, he's going to be set apart. So this means this: God is setting him apart. The Holy Spirit is going to be upon him in the womb Room, room mom. This guy is set apart from conception. And he said he's going to take the children, the sons of Israel. It means the children. He's going to turn many of them back to God. See, they thought they were going towards God. Now, they were keeping the law. They were keeping the tradition. And God said, no, 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 no. They're not coming to me. They're far away from me. He will begin the process of turning them towards me, and then this is what he says and in verse seventeen. He fulfills the end of the book of Malachi because he quotes Malachi. He will go as the forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not the Messiah; he's the one coming Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, to make ready people prepared for the Lord. He's the forerunner. He's preparing the way. In two weeks when I start my message on Mark, I'm going to preach a little bit about some of this. And I, I got to be careful because I don't. I mean, some of this stuff blends together. So here's the thing. He's going to come, and he's going to be like Elijah, turning the people back to the hearts of God. Now, what did Elijah do? Well, you go back to 1 Kings eighteen nineteen. He came before the people. They were involved in the worship of the pagan gods, the Baals, and the Asherah. I mean, they were just worshiping false gods. And Elisha just comes, and he's just there, and he's just, he just calls them to account. And he says, stop doing it. And, and, he, and he, has, he goes to the king. He confronts the king. He goes to the people. And so he says, bring all of uh, the, uh, the prophets of Baal up here, the priests of Baal. Let's have a contest. And he had this great contest in which God is shown to be the only true God and then he has all the priests of Baal just slaughters them. You know, and that sounds rough, but that's okay. We don't care. They were priests of Baal. That's not our time. It's just different. And the people turn back to God. He's going to come like Elijah and doing what? Bringing the people back to God. They're not in paganism though, God, uh, the angel. They're not pagans. No, they're not pagans, but they're not worshiping God either. So here's the thing. When you come to the message of John the Baptist, he had a very simple message. And I'm going to go into more about John in in my sermon in Mark. But he said this, repent and be baptized. So here's the thing. What were they repenting of? See, repenting isn't just to feel sorry for sin. Repentance means a fundamental change of life. I share this all the time. Repentance is I'm walking this way and I repent I change and walk that way. When I preach about Jesus And I think it's the third or fourth, uh, it's the fourth message, third message in that series of Mark. He says, repent and believe the gospel. And I always say, repent means you're going one way, you turn and go the other way. It's a completely fundamental change of life's direction. And it means that you're going away from God, repent and turn back to God. With Jesus, it means return back to God through Jesus. So why is John, Jesus isn't on the scene yet, what are they repenting of? Are they repenting of sins? No. Here's what John tells them to do. He's saying you've got to repent of following this false system you created. The repentance of John wasn't just quit sinning now, quit quit some of that adultery you got going on, quit lying. It was quit with this oral tradition, quit with this, this stuff you just make up, and turn back to God. You're walking away from God. All of you Pharisees, all of you scribes, all of you people, you're going away from God. Turn back to God. Repent. And then the baptism, this is the crazy thing about baptism. You know who was baptized in that day? Gentiles were baptized when they converted to Judaism. You know who didn't get baptized? Jews. And he goes to the Jews and says, Get baptized as evidence that you have been forgiven. Not of your individual sins. You have been forgiven of your rebellion Against God. This is how the New Testament begins. This is the first historical aspect of the New Testament. Jesus begins with the genealogy. That's just info. And then he talks about the birth of Jesus. Mark just begins with preaching John and Jesus. John goes back to the beginning theologically, but then he just begins with John the Baptist also in the mission of Jesus. Luke doesn't simply go back to the birth of Jesus. He goes back past or ahead of Jesus to the birth of John. He goes before John was even born. He's still in the Old Testament times because Jesus hadn't come yet. They're still under the law. And he says, this is what's going to happen. God's going to send this guy named John. And he's going to kick this whole thing off by saying the system you have is a mess. And God has rejected everything that you have put together for your system. The Roman system is rejected. The Roman religion, the, all the religions, in the, you know, the Greek religion, and the Jewish religion is all rejected by God. And he's going to do what he has always intended from day one. You're going to have to come through Jesus. So John tells the Jews, you've got to get ready. And he begins by taking a system created by Pharisees and scribes. And he rejects it completely. Because that's what God has done. Remember this. It doesn't matter how much you claim Bible. Bible. It doesn't matter how much you claim to be right with God. When you create systems that you have to follow to come to God, we call those systems religions. God rejects the system. You come to God through a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. And when you come to God through a person... God fundamentally alters your relationship with him so that you are made right and declared right in his eyes. At that moment, you can go live for him. We may live for God in the realm and world of a church, but what we are a part of is not a religion. What we are a part of is a movement. And this is the beginning of the movement. Well, since I'm teaching again, we'll let you ask questions again. Now, I'm not answering any questions about anything Choi said or anything Brian said because I, quite frankly, didn't pay attention. I just sat there thinking I would have done it better. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't really do that. I thought about other things. Questions you have, raise your hand and ask them loud. And I'll give it my best shot. Yes, ma'am. John is a Jew. He never baptized what? He did baptize That's who he baptized. That's what was radically different is he called the Jews to be baptized which Jews never got baptized. I probably didn't make that clear enough. But he did baptize Jews, baptize Jesus. So he did baptize who he was baptizing. He wasn't baptizing Gentiles, he was baptizing Jews.. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, you asked you asked a very technical question about the Targums and the Talmud and all that. So, uh, (laughs) not only then, but over time, uh, things like the Midrash, the Mishnah, and then and then the Talmud, which is which is the commentary on the Midrash and 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 all that stuff. So, the the oral law, the traditions, are contained in things in my Jewish stuff is limited, which is what we would call. There's a lot of other technical names, and a Jewish person would rip me to shreds on this. But for your purposes, it doesn't really matter. Just consider me right as an authority on this, whether I'm not or not. So they would, they would have their oral tradition of law in these midrash, which is in, in, in the mission and all that. And then the Targums and, and the Talmud was the commentary on that. So at the time of Christ, and I left this part out because I had to cut a bunch of stuff. There were some famous rabbis like Hillel. Hillel was probably still around at the time of Christ's birth. They were rabbis who established, in many ways, the law. And these were not bad guys, they were good guys. And other rabbis, and so the teachings of these rabbis and their commentary on the tradition of the Jews began to take the law. So they would quote Rabbi Hillel. When they come to Jesus and ask Jesus about uh, divorce, they are quoting a rabbi about the ability to get divorced. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit murder. He's not talking about what was written in the Old Testament. He's talking about the understanding of murder that the rabbis and the Pharisees had. had. Remember, he starts off in Matthew, I mean, not start off, he starts off in Matthew 5.3, the Sermon on the Mount, but in 517, he said, You're he said, I did not come to do away with the law but to fulfill it. I didn't do away with the law but fulfill it. In verse 20, he says, your righteousness has surpassed that of the Pharisees. And then in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder. He's quoting the Pharisees. I say to you, do not even hate. So at that point, he's, he is attacking the radicalization that these guys had had on the Ten Commandments. So when he comes to the Sabbath, and he heals on the Sabbath, and later on, I'll talk about Jesus' battle with the Pharisees, which was primarily on the Sabbath. He looks at them, and, and nowhere in the Old Testament law, in, in, you know, it said honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Nowhere on the comments about that in Leviticus and Numbers does it say you can't heal on the Sabbath. He says just don't do work. They said you can't heal on the Sabbath, so he looks at them and he says, "Can I heal this guy or not? Let me know." Well, they knew the answer from the Old Testament would have been yes. But from their law would have been no, and so they didn't answer, and he healed them, and, he, and then he basically condemned them. His battle with the Pharisees came about primarily over the Sabbath, and that he healed on the Sabbath, and they hated him for that. But that was their law, not God's. So, and that would have been part of the missionary, you know, all that stuff. Yes, sir. You know, I'm, I, honestly, I, if you're an Orthodox Jew, they they're they're still focused and and they're focused on the Old Testament and traditional law and all that. Didn't you ever watch Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. Okay, there you go. And uh, <laughs> it's my answer to all Jewish questions: I, I'm not as much of an. I, I'm really not as knowledgeable on that, and maybe I should be. I, just, I barely can keep up with what we do. Most. Jews, though, if they're not Orthodox, they're fundamentally secular, and they look at their Jewishness as an ethnic more than a religious. The only ones that I know of, the Conservative and Reformed, I, I, I just I know the Hasidic, the Orthodox Jews have the. From them, they would still be similar to a lot of this. The others are, are I mean, the Jews I grew up with, uh, celebrates all the the holy days, but for the most part, and they had some stuff. They did it at the synagogue, but for the most part, they don't. It's mostly ethnic. That's what I know, and people former wives, are wiser and knowledgeable than I am about that. Anything else? Okay, well, hopefully the wind stop. The rains. There's no rain, and you'd hear it. So goodbye.